But we are starting a brand new series today called Different. And when you think the word different, who or what do you think of? It's a word that's often used to describe something that's unlike another thing, person, or place. As in, my Uncle Frank is different, or that dress is different, or that hat is different. Different can also mean distinct or separate. And during this series, we're going to see that God calls us to be different, calls us to be distinct, and and how we are able to live and be different in a post-Christian culture. And so, would you be willing to ask yourself this question? Am I willing to be different? Am I willing to be different? Being different requires a different perspective. And if God is calling us to be different in a post-Christian culture, then we need to have a different perspective. And he provides that perspective for you and for me. Now, take a moment to answer this question. I'll give you a hint. The answer isn't 36. The answer isn't 78. The answer is not 8. The answer is 87. That's right. I promise it's 87. And we get the answer by flipping the puzzle around. Now, the whole point of this brain teaser is to assure us that how we see life, how we see people, how we see circumstances matters. It's important that we have the right frame, the right perspective in order to get things right. So when I was in college, I worked at the Home Depot to graduate debt free. And I did the same thing years later in seminary. And so while I was in college, I worked with a guy by the name of James. And James was from Sudan and he was over here on a work visa. And so James and I, uh, we would talk during, during our breaks together and he noticed that I had a Bible and I would go through kind of memorizing things as I was in Bible college. And he would ask me questions about the Bible and he would have his Bible. And I began probing, uh, probing a little bit and no, and really coming to find out that he was a follower of Jesus. And I began asking some of his story. Come to find out that there are some things that he could not even share because being a Christian where he lived, it was against the law. In fact, being a Christian was a crime. There were times where James, he would begin telling a story, and then he couldn't tell the story. He broke down. He could not tell the story. But one thing that James kept on saying is that, man, there are a lot of freedoms in America, and I'm not sure that everyone understands that. And then while in seminary, I was in a spiritual formation group, and it was first-year students getting together with um, other students for like prayer, uh, homework, um, accountability, stuff like that. And there was a guy in a group by the name of George. Now that was his American name. George, like James, came to America on a visa and he came from China. And during some of our group studies, uh, one of our guys, he would always try to get a, a debate stirred. He, he, he's trying to stir the pot and George never gave in to those. He, he actually never really talked, never really shared and through his broken English, George put everybody in their place. And without saying too much, he explained that his church where he came from was underground. And there was one Bible. Instead of debating the Bible, they would actually take it out, read it, celebrate it, and then hide it again. Because it was a crime to have a Bible. See, I share both of those stories 
because in both both governments, the leaders have promised a better tomorrow. They have promised a better life through the government. Like, trust us. Trust us as your leaders, and we'll provide for you. But George and James would tell you that that's an overpromise. Like, it doesn't happen. See, the leaders in these governments believe that infrastructure, industry, natural resources, and health should be under the control of the people. Simply, if people own these things, then they also own the wealth that it produces. And James and George would tell you that it sounds really good, but it actually never works out that way. They would say it goes a little bit different, where you have a few people that are extremely wealthy, and you have the rest of the people. And then, it's interesting that we're drawn to this, right? We're, we're drawn to leaders that promise something different, right? We're, we we're drawn to leaders that promise a better tomorrow. And we're going to find that Jesus promises a different kind of tomorrow. He pr- promises us a different kind of hope. Now, before we look at what China and Sudan have in common, it's important that we're able to see things through the right frame. Now, notice what Paul in the New Testament, and we're going to be in Colossians. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this is in the New Testament, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then we begin really diving into the small letters. You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. If you get to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we went a little too far. Let's come on back. When Paul is writing this to a church in a city called Colossae, it was in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire during this time, which is a few decades, a couple decades after the resurrection, Nero was the Caesar, and Nero was cruel. Nero was out of control. He was ruthless, and some people would say he was paranoid. So Paul is running to a church, living under a cruel authoritarian, who he actively oppressed those who were not aligned with his vision of Rome. So with all of that going on in the backstory, here's what Paul writes. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, things that sound really, really good, but don't have any substance, and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking. Does that sound familiar from our last series as we went through white noise and we talked about how our sin nature is an enemy, and from the spiritual powers of this world? We talked about also in white noise, we have the devil to contend with as well, rather than from Christ. And so Paul is warning the church, don't don't give in to the things that sound really, really good, that promise a better tomorrow, promise change, promise fulfillment, promise that it's going to be better, it's going to be perfect. No, no. He's like, I need you to listen. This may sound really good, but I want you to know that none of that stuff can fulfill you. Instead, this is what he writes. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Did you notice that? Where we're fulfilled doesn't come from the government. It comes from Christ. He says, so you are also complete through your union with Christ. So we are actually made whole. We're we're made alive through Christ. And the union with Christ means our relationship with Christ. That when we believe that you know, our sin fractured our relationship with God. So Jesus came to rescue us. So through his death, he paid for the penalty of our sin. He paid for the punishment of our sin. 
And we are set free when we believe in the death and resurrection. So notice this. Jesus is head over every ruler and authority. Did you catch that? There's a little bit of tension there. Because as they're reading this, that means that Christ is over Nero. So it begs the question, why in the world would Jesus allow Nero to rule as a cruel dictator, authoritarian? Why? And although I'm not really sure of the answer, I do know this. I do know that Christ is about his mission. He's, he entrusted his mission to the apostles and then to us. And he empowers us by his spirit. And the mission is to bring light to a world corrupted and darkened by sin. The light shines the brightest, as you probably know, in the darkest. Both Peter and Paul, who wrote some of the New Testament, wrote about how we're citizens of heaven. And we ought to be longing for Jesus' kingdom to fully come. And until then, we're entrusted with his mission to bring light to a dark world. And I believe that Paul wants us to focus on this. Where you and I are complete in Christ. Our deepest desires are fulfilled through him. And with Christ, we're made whole. We're made complete. We're fulfilled. Without Christ, we're going to be needing him. And we're going to be wanting the, the, these promises made. But with Christ, we don't need that. Because we have everything we need in him. So getting back to James and, and George. The governments that they lived under were a lot like Nero's Rome. I like what Rod Rear, he, he is writing this book and he gives a lot of credit to Hannah Arnett. And, and Hannah is the foremost scholar of total, totalitarianism and a, a totalitarian society is one in which an ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under the control of that ideology. That is what James and George lived under. Truth is whatever the rulers decide it is. Today's totalitarian demands allegiance to a set of progressive beliefs, many of which are incompatible with logic and certainly with Christianity. Compliance is forced less by the state than by elites who form public opinion and by private corporations that, thanks for technology, control our lives far more than we should like to admit. So this totalitarianism, it's tied and connected to socialism. So when the government becomes the only authority and allegiance for the people. So I guess this is the way we could explain it. The government is controlled by specific people, hand-chosen or through lineage, and as more power flows to the government, the more power a few people have, which means the less the people who are doing all the work have. Now, in some countries like Russia, North Korea, and China, these few people govern with corruption, and anyone that stands in their way or has a different vision for their empire or their ideology is threatened, imprisoned, or killed. And both of any type of state like this, whether it's totalitarianism or socialism, it's tied to a philosophy called Marxism. And without diving too much into Karl Marx, there are a few things 
to his backstory that are necessary to know. Number one, his family thought he was possessed by a demon. As he never had a job, he was a tyrant, racist, and misogynist. He drank and smoked too much. He never exercised. He suffered from warts and boils from the lack of washing. And he fathered an illegitimate child through his maid. His wife, Jenny, was suicidal. There, there, there are times where she wanted to end her life, but she just didn't. In fact, her two daughters committed suicide. His close friend, Engels, believed that he was influenced by 10,000 demons. In his own words, this is what Marx believed. Marx believed that religion was the opium of the people. And for his style of government to secede, whether it was socialism or communism or totalitarianism, loyalty to the state was required. This meant replacing loyalty to the church with loyalty to the state. See, Marx did not believe that religion could be freely expressed because it would take one's loyalty away from the state. He did not believe that religion and faith could coexist with government. Here's an example. The Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, read Marx's playbook called the Communist Manifesto, and they launched terror against all religions, including the Russian Orthodox Church. As the Russian Empire then transitioned to be the Soviet Union because of the takeover, David Jeremiah notes this. In the following years, countless Orthodox bishops and priests were murdered, and those who survived were denied their civil rights and subjected to economic oppression. See, we see this played out in our world today. And we even see this beginning to creep into our country. See, there are four actions being taken by those who follow Marx's playbook, the Communist Manifesto. Now, do any of these sound familiar? You have the destruction of monuments. You have the destruction of monuments. Then I like what Milan Kundrias, the first step of liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history. And then have someone write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. Now, here's what makes our faith so different. See, in fact, our faith, the word remember is used in the Bible 234 times. You know how English, we have one word for remember. In fact, between the Hebrew and Greek languages, there are 17 words or root words for the word remember. One of the things we do often as a church is we do the Lord's Supper. We're remembering what Jesus did for us. The word remember is really important. Another thing we may see happen if someone's following the playbook is cancel culture. And as a tyrant, Marx wouldn't allow a different viewpoint. In fact, he shut down every other viewpoint that disagreed with his reality of the world, his view of the world. Marx wanted a distinct reality, and if any opinion was different than that, it was canceled. Marx was not tolerant. Now, it's interesting that our current council culture claims to be tolerant when, in fact, it's only tolerant within its own reality. Now, here's what's so amazing about our faith. 
This is what's so different about our faith. Our faith is the opposite of cancel culture. God wants to provide healing to you and to me for our fractured relationship with him. Instead of canceling us because of our sin, he he provides forgiveness if we would accept what Jesus did in our place. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. Instead of canceling you and canceling me, he gives us grace, mercy, forgiveness. Another thing that we see is disrupting the nuclear family. Marx viewed the family as clusters of oppression. You had women being suppressed by men and you had kids being suppressed by parents. And he believed the clusters of oppression had to be broken up. And so in his case, women had to leave the home, work for the good of the state. And he knew this, if the family is strong, socialism, Marxism cannot secede. See, God created the family with the purpose to reveal his character. Do you know marriage and parenthood are both pictures of the gospel? Um, I've been married almost, uh, it'd be 18 years now. Um, Jenny and I have been together for, for over 20, and it's interesting. There are still times where I still mess up, and I have to go to her and say, baby, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And I sincerely mean it every time. I'm so thankful that she's willing to extend forgiveness and grace to me. See, that's a picture of the gospel. The same thing happens with our kids. Being a dad, there's been times where I've messed up and I had to go to Brooke and say, you know, dad got a, a little out of control a little bit. Uh, I, I should not have yelled. Um, and then she, and I say, will you forgive me? And she, of course, will forgive me. That's the picture of the gospel. When a relationship is fractured, we seek forgiveness. We seek reconciliation. Hmm. See, that's what makes our faith so different. And then uh, another thing we'll see played out is the redistribution of wealth. See, Marx taught that all our assets ought to be claimed by the government and then redistributed to everyone equitably or equally. Now, I like what Ian Murray observes. He says the central issues with income inequality is that people who seem to be the most concerned with it never really ask the question, how are the poor actually doing? Because when you ask that question and look at the data that it answers, you will see that the poor do the best in economically free societies and do the worst in societies where they are controlled in one way or another whether it be by socialist or fascist or authoritarian regimes. He's saying, listen, it doesn't necessarily work the way that they promise that it will work. And a quick glance, and this is what makes our faith so different, a quick glance through our Old Testament and New Testament will show that God is about generosity and his people are to reflect generosity. I love in the New Testament, as we read, the church shared what they had with those who didn't have, and that inspired generosity. Now, where does this leave us? Where does it leave you? Where does it leave me? Like, what are we supposed to do with this information? Well, I believe there are three things that you and I ought to do. Number one, as we live in a world searching for a better life, what Marx wanted is not what Jesus wants. In fact, Jesus is the perfect king who was predicted by a prophet by the name of Isaiah 
hundreds of years before a baby in Bethlehem was born, who was Jesus. For it was predicted, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. That means that Jesus' kingdom will have eternal peace. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passion, the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. See, you might ask, how does Jesus able to rule with peace, fairness, and justice? And that is because he is God. He's perfect. He's good. He's awesome in power. Imagine living with him as king because he is the only king in history to lead the glories of heaven, to live as a human being, and then die a painful death so that you and I could be saved from the penalty of our sin. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill your and my needs. He's the only one that can fill our deepest desires and provide us a hope for that perfect state, that perfect life. Another thing that we could do is that we could live in the now and the not yet. As we live in the now and the not yet, Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom to come. So it's important that we pray for the kingdom to come. See, we live in this weird time because the kingdom is here because the Holy Spirit is building the church, but our king isn't here. So we live in this weird here, not yet, or the now and the not yet. And Jesus taught us, may your kingdom come soon. He's like, pray this, may your kingdom come soon. And by praying this way, our hearts and our minds are focused on and longing for Jesus to make all things new. Man, this is what James and George, that's what they were longing for as they were living under some brutal regimes. And guys, even as Americans, we should be longing for this. And then finally, as we wait for the king to return, we are to be a light to a dark world by how we live and how we love. Jesus taught us that things are going to get pretty rough. So Matthew is writing things down that Jesus is teaching, and we found it in Matthew 24. And Jesus is pretty clear. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines, natural disasters, busted economies, sinful lifestyles just become norm and persecution. And this may mean that America that was founded in 1776 no longer exists in the future. And if in fact it becomes compromised and no longer is the America that was founded on Christian beliefs, then we need to remember that God put us here on purpose and with a purpose for his purpose. And Jesus called us to this greater purpose and that greater purpose was to be like a city on a hill broadcasting through our lives that there is a better way to live. And this may mean at times we resist like Peter and the apostles did. And they were caught saying, we, we must obey God rather than human authority. This may mean that we defy immoral orders, not moral orders, but immoral orders. This may mean that we stand up for our kids. This may mean that we stop relying on the government to provide our basic needs because what's happened is people stop working. In fact, work is a very good thing. Work's not a curse. Work was something that God instituted well before sin kind of broke things down. In fact, this is what Paul writes. He says, if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, 
Use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to those in need. So, going back to the very first question I asked you, would you be willing to ask this question? Am I willing to be different? And then, am I willing to trust the different king who leads against the philosophies of culture for a better way of life? And honestly, I would argue that following Jesus is the best way of life. We have a lot to think about. We have a lot to do as we pray for our king to come. But in the meantime, we are called to be a light. We are called to be a light to a very dark world. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to learn from your word. We live in challenging times. We live in at times troubling times as we see war being, being broken out in different regions around the world. And we are asking right now that you would continue to allow the church to, to be different as we are hearing stories of how the church, how pastors are, are bringing their kids you know, to one place and then they're coming back to help minister to those who are in the military, those who are healthcare workers, those are first-line responders. It's so interesting to see you at work. When everything seems so broken, it's so amazing how the church can still be at peace. And so, Father, I ask that we would have peace with you, that if anyone is maybe anxious or they don't want to have a relationship with you or maybe they're still trying to figure it out, I, I just pray that they will be drawn and they will have peace with you by believing that Jesus died for them. Then, Father, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, remind us that we are called to have a different type of calling, and that calling is to be a light to our world. Help us to be different. Help us to be distinct. And so, Father, I ask that you will help us to stay faithful and we will persevere to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.